Let's go ahead and turn in the Word. We'll be for today's uh, sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. That means there's a relatable story that intertwines with each account from a different perspective. John illuminates something not out of context, but something that's very radically focused on Jesus personally. And so we're going to enjoy right now what this represents, which is the resurrection inspection. The individuals that are given account here in what we know to be the means by which God saved us through his son, and the account specifically that we'll be picking up in is found in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to take it at just what we would say the hours before his offering through his life was rendered acceptable and he would be taken down from that cross and he would be entombed in a place in which on a day such as today, demonstrating the grave would not hold him, those in faith that believe in him will not be held by the grave. So it's an exciting story. Let's pick that up right now. Pick it up with me in verse 39. And Lord, we do ask, even as it has been prayed, that you'll bless our time in this account of what you purpose to do and satisfied thoroughly and have indeed demonstrated in the resurrection of your body from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Such an important understanding theologically that one who many misunderstand is simply a teacher, rabbinical teacher, prophet, one who discerns and is able to give a word from God is rather specifically and to us inarguably God himself. Therefore, everything that he did, he would hedge in with both what had been foretold of him, what people personally knew of him, and what ultimately would be satisfied presently, that he is irrefutably, undeniably alive. And he's chosen, and this is the marvel, to be alive in us, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's where we pick this up. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. So you know the account. In his execution, there are two who are with him, and they are considered by account as thieves, violators of Roman law, and as a result, the penalty of their sin in violation of Roman law is to die. 
One of them in this specific state of execution chooses to, if you would, defame the Lord. He knows that this man who would be centered to both of them is extraordinarily different than them. And so this blasphemous language coming out of his mouth is to deny who he has claimed to be. Notice this. He makes this statement and then says, if you are the Christ, save yourself in us. But the other, this is the second thief, answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, it's interesting, it could be viewed several ways, meaning that God is presiding and looking down upon us, or what I believe to be emphasized here, this is God you're talking to, enduring the same condemnation as us. Have you no respect? What leads us to that is that in this pronouncement or this chastisement of probably his associate, they may have been engaged in thievery together, doesn't matter, that's what they are noted for in their punishment. We indeed justly, verse 41, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. A criminal pronouncing an innocent man innocent. That's pretty awesome when you can get one who's notably a violator of the law, probably one who's unable to tell the truth in his moment of perhaps his last chance, he acts as an adjudicator. In other words, he's saying in advance what Jesus has always walked in truth and light. He's innocent. You and I, we deserve this. And under the same condemnation, he does not deserve this. Notice where it advances because this is important as we look into this investigation. As he says this, he now personalizes it to Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This appeal to Jesus himself is an acknowledgement in faith that you're coming into a kingdom that you will enter into upon your death. I want to be there with you. There's not a mention of the grave, which would await them. Criminals of those type would literally be discarded in a pile, and their bones would be allowed to, if you would, be exposed after the elements and the birds and so forth. That seems to be historically true. There was just a discard area. There wasn't any formal burial, unless they had family members that could pay for that which would have been the only way that Rome would have given them up. He indicates by this language that he anticipates the Lord in a remarkable new way that he personally wants to be a beneficiary of. It's important to note that we are beneficiaries of a life 
eternal rewards we don't deserve, but that the Lord has privileged us to be able to expect to receive from him in this tenure of earth that we can look forward with great enthusiasm because Jesus has already not only paid that price for us, but he's also proven, validated, that he arose from the grave. This guy's looking forward to that. We look back on it and we live in the moment of what? Our soon and coming Savior calling us up. That's a high expectation. Well, as he says this, notice this beautiful response. And it is important with regard to ultimately what remains to be done. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What he doesn't say, congratulations, glad you acknowledged me. We will both be in the grave today. You see, the grave has a place that's obvious. All cultures make provision for the dead. But Jesus is saying, I've made provision for paradise. And they understood what that would mean. They understood that it would be an extraordinary place of perfection that only God had purposed for the righteous, for those who were holy, for those who had not desecrated themselves in culture, paganism. And so this man had only one thing to be able to do in the faith that he had in his heart, which was express a confidence, Lord, in your kingdom. Can I be with you? And assuredly, Jesus pronounces that. For us right now, and some that may not believe, there are some in every congregation that have not yet believed. This is triumphant. Because some of us actually fear dying. Because we're not fully confident of what it means. We've seen too many spooky movies on it. We're a culture that gets caught up in the living dead. But when Jesus referred to those who were dead as living, he wasn't referring to zombies. He was referring to the perfected state of those preceding us in death and by faith having lived a life that is rewarded in the eternal. Paul would say to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. All of this anticipates that the cost would be paid by Jesus himself in which God, through the utterance of the Lord, saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they are doing. That by that statement, and ultimately the Lord's last breath would ratify that. And the resurrection would confirm it. It's a done deal. The transaction has been accepted. We have a faith that assures that with people that are wrestling with fear. We probably at maybe some other points in time have been a fearful culture, a fearful nation, but I'd say it's really at its peak right now. We're not assured of much except for you and I in this church today that we are believers. We've been set apart. The one whom we read about has set us apart, commissioned us by his spirit. We have great things to look forward to even as there are great things to be groaning through.
The text now moves from these two characters, and they're important, these thieves are. They're criminals. In essence, sin has made us criminals as well. No distinct difference. Different time, different place, different outfits. But the criminal right now is actually serving as a testimony, as a witness of who Jesus said he was and who, in fact, he will prove himself to be, a criminal. We can admit that as evidence. A prequel, as we've used that term before, in this wonderful movie of redemption that God has produced for us to see in scriptures. This is a script. It's a script that is full of truth. It is a script that illuminates the mind that has been in darkness. It's an incredible book that God has given to us. It's a divine instrument. In this next area, and you're wondering how possibly could we get through the scriptures, because we're just going to move as far as we can get today. There's another important person here. Verse 44, it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So for you and I, that may need to have that kind of just spelled out. It's about noon at the time of this verse. And it's telling us that for three hours, it's not global warming, it's global darkness. It's not just in that area. The scriptures tell us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is global darkness. I do not know how in global darkness that we would not see an influence in a weather pattern that would be rather extraordinary. But this was a time in which the judgment of the Father, our Holy Father, the Lord whom said he came to do his Father's will, would be demonstrated in an utter darkness because the Son of God, the light of the world, was being put to death. And so for three hours is what this is telling us. There was an enduring of utter darkness. That's a scary place to be. When we cannot have light, and I'm saying no light, it is a scary place to be. Was this absolute zero light? It says a darkness. I suppose it depends on how much you can squint. But it would have had a radical effect on the emotions of people. Because something like that just doesn't happen without anticipation, even back then in the sciences, or in what they would say, huh, somebody's not happy right now. See, they would have pagan deities that they could say, well, this is a result of that. This is a result of this. But on this one, the only thing that they could attribute it to is something dynamically linked to that man centered on the cross between two thieves. To this point, there had already been observation made of him and mockery that was intended to him. 
the disciples in place, not all of them, but we do know some of them that are there, are also in this time of what you would call a physical crisis of not seeing, only having to focus on the one that they had seen, had walked with, given their hearts to. In this darkness, it says the veil of the temple was torn in two. Jesus favored, obviously, the house of his father, the house of prayer, to such a degree that he cleansed it once in the beginning of the ministry and the second time just before the judgment that was placed upon him. It would have been an extraordinary place to have gone to hear teachings. And many who found themselves there would have heard Jesus in his teachings. And his teachings were only more phenomenal than when at 12 years of age he caught the ears of the Pharisees and of the scribes and the Sadducees that would have tended that special building. They were amazed to be able to ask a 12-year-old questions and have a 12-year-old answer as if God had spoken through him. Well, he did speak through him because that 12-year-old as a teacher was God. And so as this is happening, there is an attendance, what you would call a cloistering of punishers. They're the ones whose job is to make sure that the killing of the criminal is painful and to preserve them as long as possible under that duress. So when it reaches the ninth hour at noon, there is going to be this time in which both pain and suffering will be probably at its maximum. In this time, the sixth hour, that's noon, pardon me, the ninth hour is when it will conclude. Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So the noon hour is compressed to the exact hour that he gave up the ghost. The criminal had been not yet taken. They actually live longer than the Lord. The Lord had accomplished his work. The people who have gathered here right now are making a deduction that something phenomenal has happened and something worthy of an emotional exchange. In verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. It may be presumed that at this time the light of day broke through, for the light of the world had indeed shone and given his life, that as he came to know his own, he now was ready to be prepared to enter into heaven. It's an interesting dynamics right now because with a criminal with those who had been involved 
in the temple exercise, the priesthood there, they would have seen an extraordinary event which would have been the renting of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. You need to understand, as you probably are familiar, no man could have done it. It was torn in two. And God was saying in that time when Jesus gave up his life, access by faith to me 24-7. It no longer had to go through the priesthood because the priest that that place was to be identifying with, Jesus himself gave entry by his death. It would have been an extraordinary event. It would have been something that would have been hard-pressed for them to explain except by one source only. God has done this. God has done this. The centurion confesses this, and he's doing so being a commander. He is a corrections officer, and what he has found himself to be is corrected by what he has seen in being the attendee of the execution of God himself. Interesting. That's called a confession. Probably what we would say, that's the best that he could do, is to say, this is a righteous man. Righteousness implies perfection. It implies without sin. There's no charge that can be held against him. He's innocent. He is whom he has said he is, and this is what we've done. The testimony builds to ultimately what God will have revealed on the resurrection day. For there is time yet in which a passage of days must take place. He's a righteous man. Verse 48, and the whole crowd who came together to that site seeing what had been done, building the case now, beat their breasts and returned. These were, the majority of them, the conspicuous deniers. They were those who were robed in the garb of the priesthood, and they were also those who from a distance were the disciples. We know by account that two of them remained close, and that would have been Mary and John. The others were at a distance. And the others belonging to this crowd that no doubt were those hurling accusations at him and shaking their heads and their fists are now beating their breasts, renting their garments. The curtain rents in the Holy of Holies and the garments of these doubters are now becoming, if you would, softened to take their apparel and tear it because they know they've participated in an execution of one whom had declared himself to be God. Talk about the fear of God. Talk about reverence in a moment. They build the case for the testimony of the resurrection other accounts will say that at this moment, tombs opened up and the dead came out and walked among the city. But they weren't zombies. They were given a moment of resuscitation 
in which they would have been an explanation hard-pressed to have said, what in the world? Because it was out of this world what God permitted as a testimony of life granted by the giver of life, the author of life, who now was dead. What a day to have lived in. But I would also tell you, Jesus would say, what a day for you guys to be living in. You're closer to what I've gone to do than any generation before you. We're that close. We really are. We're always to say that, but I believe unlike any generation as you look at the world scene, we are very, very close to being caught up with the Lord into heaven. Where else does this go? Here's where we're at. In verse 50, now behold, there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea, or that is who he is, a council member, a good and just man. And so he's actually one of the ones in leadership. And he is in that sense saying, that doesn't matter. What matters is that I tend my Lord. And here's what we find. He had not consented to their decision indeed, meaning he had no part in the vote to put Jesus to death. Very likely he was an outspoken man. Nicodemus would have been more the silent one. What proves his bravery is that he was not only noted for the city he came from, but it says that he was one who waited for the kingdom of God. And now he sees the evidence of that before him as he believes in the king of kings. This man in his bravery, notice this, the exercise of his faith. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Then verse 53, it says, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. The gospel accounts in other areas indicate this was his. He had prepared it for himself, for his family lineage. Normally a crypt would be made. It usually was by those who were wealthy enough to afford the real estate, have it dug out. And there was a box designed in which once the elements had taken their toll, on a body, then those bones would be put in a box. And the next one that would pass away within that family, they would be allowed to obviously go into the earth. Their bones would be collected, and they were bone boxes. And that's how they did it. This is somewhat extraordinary because it is a larger tomb, which you don't see very often in some of those tombs. It's actually one that can accommodate a full-size body. And the importance in that to remember is that this would accommodate the fullness of God on that slab. That term is interesting, too, just letting you know that in Jerusalem there's two areas that pilgrims will come. One is cathedral-like in which they say, this is where the cross was at. And this was the slab that the Lord was laid on in the tomb. 
You go to the other tomb, and this is the garden tomb, which I believe, and this is where he was laid, which I also believe. And there's no slab, it's the hewn-out rock. So which is which? Well, last week we talked about that as Jesus was coming into the city and there was protest, tell your disciples to stay quiet. And he said, if I were to do that, even these stones, these rocks would cry out. When you go into the sepulcher, the Holy Sepulcher, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, they have this stone that's on the floor. And what you'll see is the pilgrimage there are by people that actually will go to wipe their cloths on. They will go to put little trinkets and offerings to the Lord on it. They will kiss the stone. And I would probably tell you if those stone outside and if that stone is a slab should cry out it would say don't kiss me <laughs> I'm not that slab but the slab would also say and this is true this man did not decay unlike any in recorded history, none could. He did not suffer decay. Go with me, if you would, to Psalm 16, verse 10. This is an important prophetic word. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The other word for that, more familiar to us in death, is decay. There will be no decay that will happen. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The emphasized verses, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David's the penner of this. He's penning in prophecy. His body would be interned, and his body would turn to dust. They have his sarcophagus in Jerusalem, and you can stand in line to see it. Those bones would indeed only remain to the degree that they were preserved. But the other is this. There would be in that no evidence that there was not decay. That's a joyous song. Jesus did not decay. It's a perfect song to be playing. No heavy metal. No death music, just a beautiful song. That was totally the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> it's so hard to orchestrate those things, so. Actually, I don't have to. Jesus came 
from a virgin womb and he would be laid in a virgin tomb. Very important to note that it had never had a body on it. The reason that this is important is if it were true that he was not really extraordinary, then excuses could be made as to how he got out of the tomb. When a person dies, there is about two hours before a process called rigor mortis happens. It's simply that the body begins in that process of decay to seize up. There's nobody that gets away with it. We don't. There are things that by professional services we can be preserved just a little bit longer, but we all turn to dust and the frame that remains is the skeleton. Within two hours, the body is what you would call completely stiff. The process, and this is important to understand, is that at that point in time, the body had been aerobic. It needed oxygen. It doesn't get oxygen. So it moves into a state of anaerobic decline, meaning that there are organisms within us in the cellular level that are dispatched to go ahead and create corruption or demise. There are stages. We don't need to go into it. You just need to know that with that would come if it's not buried in a timely manner, or even if it is, there's the evidence that a body was in decay. In other words, the stone that Jesus was laid on would have had the evidence of decay upon it. Within three days and in that climate, because if it happens within two hours rigor mortis, the other things happen within eight to 12 hours. The stone would have accepted the demise of the body in the forms of fluid. It would have been stained by the porous rock. And therefore, evidence would have suggested to them, well, his body was stolen, but the evidence of his death remains. They would have gone in there. They couldn't explain logically why his body wasn't there, but they had no evidence that his body ever went into decay. The stones would not speak of it. As the stone that's being kissed in the chapel there in Jerusalem says, not me, not here. I praise the Lord, get your lips off of me. The stone inside what I believe is the garden tomb would say, not here, never was. He was as perfectly supple as what we would say a brand new baby in the arms of his mother would have been. And it's an important understanding. It wasn't that he just simply arose from the grave as he said he would. He never went through decay. There was never stench, which is why we find in the scriptures the woman moving towards what was the tradition of myrrh and frankincense to be applied to him. But it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea did what he could, removed the body from the cross, wrapped it in clean linen, and put it in his tomb. Meaning that what would have been intended for a dead man to purge the stench which would inevitably be coming, not to defer, if you would, decomposition, but just to keep the stench from so much offense, these spices that would never be put upon him that I think were in the neighborhood of 
they were ready to have 100 pounds, they would have been simply the offering of one who had given his life, the myrrh, and one who represented the priesthood and the frankincense. There were other things such as aloe that would also be a part of that. It never needed to be used because that tomb would have smelled as fresh as the day that it was carved, musty at best. So we look to the tomb saying he's not there, but the tomb also would say, yep, so true. He's not here and he never decayed. Who he is is who we know him to be. And if our lips could cry out, we would tell you that. Suppressed, why? So that faith may have its proper place. And so the women who had come were not given the opportunity to do anything but to return after three days. It says that they prepared the spices and the fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 24. On the first day, this is when it happened. This is our day right now. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Don't want to offend anybody here. Maybe I do. They're two men. They are not women. They are angels. They are right now in a position that, as you know, was pictured in the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant in which a mercy seat, which was a cover, put over the Ark itself, which contained the Ten Commandments. It contained the staff or the rod of Aaron. It contained the pot of manna. The mercy seat had two angelic beings in gold that were facing over it, wings that were touching one another, bowed in reverence. And the picture of that was the fulfillment of these two found in there. And that's the thing is that the Lord is saying, what I pictured back then in the tabernacle, what I desired to be shown in the temple, is the reality right now in this tomb. They are there to say, he's risen. You're not going to find him here. What were you expecting? He told you, clear enough, he would die and he would rise again on the third day. And so it says, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? And the Lord would say to us, remember how he spoke to you when you read the word, when you heard the teaching, when that song grabbed your heart, 
when from a moment of near-death experience God saved you, that you might be able to, in faith, be truly saved. See, God will do that. He'll save a man and woman child from literally the termination of their soul from eternity by an act of grace, of mercy. But that person needs to inventory how many times has God rescued my soul from an accident that either was my fault or somebody else's, but I was spared. And this is when we remember the Lord, both in the elements of communion that we take, which is truly the acknowledgement of what he did for us, but this practical work of God to save us for the assurance of being able to enter into heaven with him. Very often on a Sunday, we are teaching to the choir, the ones who are robed, the ones who sing the songs of redemption. But very often there are those who either ignorantly or arrogantly are not positioned in faith to be saved. They're holding a spot, but you're closer to death than you are life, even though it seems this is so awesome, you guys sing, you rock, feel really jolly when I leave here. And the Lord would say, yeah, but it's only until that time in which your soul will be required of you. And I want your soul. And so in this, the word of the Lord comes. The evidence of divine beings pronounce it. They go back and say, don't you remember that? Don't you remember that? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. This is that day. This is your day. And they remembered his words. And then this beautifully moves through the evangel message being given to these women to go and tell the disciples. That tells you that God honors the woman deeply to entrust them with the message of the resurrection. They were the first entrusted source of news. And it's an awesome picture. No confusion here. Awesome picture of both their heart and their ability even to be fearless and confident. They transfer that message. The rest of this text speaks of the intervals of what Jesus does Afterwards, he meets up with people. He personalizes their time with him. He challenges them on the things that are yet to be done. It's a pretty awesome account. I'm going to flip our eyes over here to the Gospel of John really quick. Because where we left off, where the women are given the message to share to the disciples... This one woman is important to take note of. And then we'll close here. Woman, he says, this is now in the Gospel of John, and it's in the 20th chapter, and I'm picking it up just with the quote in verse 15. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be, the gardener said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, 
for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. I want you to see a correlation that is very special. Mary Magdalene was the one that had seven demons in her. And he came in a time in which she had been resoundingly rejected, feared. She was tormented so severely from a township called Magdala. They have a place there, obviously, very close to the lake. And it's fascinating, both in the memoriam they pay to her, but what's important right now is the picture this represents. By a woman, Eve, who the scriptures say through Peter's epistle was deceived, Adam was disobedient, sin ultimately between the two came to be the result of both of their transactions. Eve was deceived by whom? Satan. Satan had come, obviously, disguised. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know that he teased her with questions about God, who God was. Wouldn't she like to be more like God? Wouldn't they do better? And what is God holding out that he doesn't want you to know? One woman, her husband, deceived, disobedient, plunged the world into the consequence of sin, which is death, and that only God can save a person from. And now, thousands of years later, this God, the Lord who walked with man to begin, if you would, fellowship, he meets a woman who's not plagued by one, the devil. She's got seven of them that are influencing her life, and she saves and she is saved by him and follows him dearly. Where one could only hope in a redemptive work of God, Eve did. She looked forward to a hope of a son that would come. It was prophetic to this woman who's liberated, and she sees him as a gardener. The first sins committed in the garden, and this woman who was possessed perceives Jesus as a gardener. It's a beautiful picture of how both of those, one of consequence and the other of redemption, of even a greater plaguing, seven, to the one, and Jesus is there. I've done it. What needed to be reconciled all the way back in Eve's day is now reconciled. Mary, go spread the news. Go spread the news. And so it's a great account. There's so many things that as well just lead us irrefutably to the conclusions that the Lord has made this a win-win for the world if we choose to believe that indeed the price has been paid a culture that now moves towards embracing lies and perceiving it to be truth needs to be confronted by the truth that we have that can liberate them to eternal life. So we're going to go ahead and 
leave that to rest.